All right. Well, AJ, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too, Aaron. We're back on the church podcast, though we're lacking a significant percentage of our membership. Yep. Matthew is not with us today, but we'll somehow manage. So, AJ, I have a question for you. I have two questions for you. What is going on with all of the road construction on 42? I don't know. I wish I knew. I always go the back way to work or to church if, if I yeah. can. If I am trying to get to 35 North from church, now instead of turning left on Burnhaven and going 42 to 35 North, I cut right across into the mall parking lot because it's way faster to go through there and then get out on 42 than to wait to make a right-hand turn. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah, it's really bad. You know what they say, there's two seasons in Minnesota, winter and construction. And they are right. They are right. Um, Here's my second question. What is the deal with the high amount of Teslas I'm seeing in the Burnsville Apple Valley area. Am I making this up or is this like an actual like increase of Teslas in our area? I think you're right. I've been noticing it too. I'm not sure why we're seeing it now, but what's your theory on this? I've got a couple. Well, I don't really have a theory. So here's one of my theories. There are rich people who are moving to our area from somewhere else. So I've heard rumor that like people are leaving California. And I saw in a news article, Minneapolis is one of the places people are coming to. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but that's one of my theories. That could be. So my other theory is that people who have had like decent cars are realizing you can sell a used car now. And it almost, in my opinion, makes more sense to buy a new car than a used car at this moment in time. So taking that, the amount of money they couldn't get from something, plus high gas prices, people are maybe more open to spending a little bit more, but feeling like they're justified in doing it because of current gas prices. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think if you happen to have the right vehicle and... If it's appreciated in value, which is not the typical case, then you could get away with selling it and justifying not paying potential gas prices in the future and being able to afford the payment of Mm -hmm. a Tesla. Yeah, so that's my theory. In part, I arrived at this theory because of a situation you told me about. But then also, we don't need a different car because we have two fine cars, But part of me would like to have an SUV. So I was like, maybe I could sell one of our cars, our older one, way more than we paid for it, and then, you know, put that towards an SUV. So I started looking at SUVs, and like the kind that I would want, Honda or Toyota, you know, that's what I'd probably go for. Maybe even Subaru. Like, to buy one with less than 100,000 miles... You're looking at almost $20,000. Like at that point, why wouldn't you just spend the 25 or 30 and get a base model brand new one? Right. Yeah. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's tough if you need to buy a vehicle right now. Or like minivans. I know, you know, some of the people at our church have, you know, a mind towards the minivan market. Those are really expensive too. Finding one below 100,000, that's not 
like twenty thousand dollars. That's crazy. Yeah. So this week, AJ, because you asked, is my first week back from sabbatical. I came back to the office on Tuesday, and also it was my first night of teaching at Bethlehem on Tuesday at a class that starts at 8 p.m. and goes till 10. Oh, wow. So, you know, I think, you know, my wife has type 1 diabetes, and sometimes she'll get low blood sugar. So at 3.30 in the morning on Tuesday, the alarm went off that she was going low. So I went down to get her some apple juice. I couldn't get back to sleep. Oh, no. So Tuesday was nuts. On top of all of that, Tuesday was the last day of the month, and I'm in a running competition And I was behind. I knew by at least a mile and a half, maybe more. So after I got back from my class, I decided it was like 1045. I was like, I am not going to lose this month. So I did a 3.5-er in the dark. I was so tired after all of that. And then, because on sabbatical, if I'm tired, like, you know how you get the afternoon slumps sometimes? Mm Mm-hmm. I'd just take a nap at two for like half an hour or something. Right. So Wednesday at two o'clock, I had to break my nap schedule after a super long day. So Wednesday was a little rough. But uh, wow, that's a lot. Yeah. But the sermon's written, at least the rough draft. Okay. And it makes sense to me, <laughs> though. I, I don't know if it will to anybody else. Well, you did post the. Uh an intro to the sermon series and the book with the author and the audience, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, did you edit that? Did you make any changes or did you just throw it up there? I just threw it up there. I wanted just to look at it, what it looked like when it was up there. Cause sometimes the formatting is off. Yeah. And I did change one thing oh, okay. vis-a-vis the formatting, but I did it like as soon as I like scrolled to the bottom to make sure everything was in order, my eye caught two glaring grammatical issues. So I went back in and edited oh, them out. So anyway, for whatever that's worth, um, I sort of made the judgment that you didn't proof it. You just put it up there. So I didn't use the Grammarly app. So that's part of the problem. That probably would have caught it. Hmm. Well, we're back in our Bible reading section. And let me tell you, AJ, I think that this section from second samuel is the most confusing section of the bible that we've read so far why is it confusing at least regarding the old testament okay there are so many places that people move to there are so many names involved Mm -hmm. and maybe it's because i did my reading in the afternoon slumps but i kept getting confused on characters and then there's this bizarre scene where it seems like god tells david to do a census and then punishes him for doing a census. Right. So maybe you can help me make sense of what took place in our Old Testament reading. Yeah, and sometimes the he's, you can't tell who they're connected to. Sure. You have so many, like, step-siblings of David's offspring where things are going on. You have people with divided allegiances, and then you have Mephibosheth, right, who either legitimately betrayed david or his servant lied about him betraying david there's a lot there that's hard to unravel so maybe you can help us at least understand the big takeaways from these texts even if the narratives are a little unclear so so what are the big takeaways from our reading in second samuel well i think like you said last week 
her last time. You know, this David's sin with Bathsheba in chapter 10, 11, and 12, it kind of sets up this turning point for the rest of the book. And, um, you know, we see that with, with David's family, the conflict and the mm-hmm. judgment from God. So I think that's just a key event. And then we're just seeing the consequences, the ripple effect play out throughout the rest of the book. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, if nothing else, we walk away feeling like David is a really complicated figure, as people say. He's very, he's not all good, but he's also not all bad. And it's almost like in David's person is a reflection of the nation of Israel, where there's a mix of righteousness and evil in the same place, in the same person. And then as we get to the end of the account, that emphasizes God's faithfulness to David, the promise that he makes to him. I I left the book feeling like the only reason that someone like David or a nation like Israel or someone like me can end life or um, navigate life tilting towards the righteousness instead of the evils because of God's faithfulness and promises to keep drawing people to himself. Hmm. Yeah, I think looking to what the Bible says about relationships is really good advice. And it reminds me of 1 John 2.10 that says, The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And this verse is debated in how to understand it. But one common way of understanding it is that when you're loving other people, one aspect of truly loving them truly being a good friend is that there's no cause for stumbling. You, you don't put anything before them that would cause them to walk in darkness instead of in the light. And I think evalu- evaluating our friendships in that way is really good. And it's hard to see that sometimes, but I was encouraged recently by a friend who uh, we had a conversation and he relayed some information, um, not like, privileged information but just talking about someone in a particular way and uh then like several days later he left me a voice message saying hey i should not have been talking about that person that way i don't want to be the kind of friend who demeans people or anything like that so i think you know that guy is doing what we're talking about here and it's a really good example I don't have anything else to say in the Old Testament. I think it's just genuinely confusing, particularly that section with David in the census. I don't know if you investigated that at all. I mean, we could look at it here, but this is, I I remember, you know, maybe I've never, just never read closely enough, but I remember even when I was a little kid being confused by this, Mm -hmm. you know, where David does the census what chapter is that? 24? It's after David's last words. Yeah. One of my things is like, well, yeah. words are these? Yeah, 24-1. One. The, Lord, the Lord's anger burned against Israel again, and he stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel in Judah. So it seems like God caused David to do this. You know, he's angry at Israel and now he's contrived a situation where he can pin his anger on something and then execute judgment. Is this one of those situations where it's like Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God hardened it, his heart, where David still acted, but also God 
you know, brought this about. Yeah, and it definitely both. could be. But then, like, and I know that in the Old Testament, there's always a correlation between the king and Israel. Like, the king is representative of Israel, all these sorts of things. So, so maybe there's something there. But then it's also interesting that when Gad, David's seer, you know, or prophet maybe, tells David, you have to pick one, one of these three punishments. David says, well, I'd rather be at God's mercy instead of my human enemies. So in the same narrative, you hear of God stirring David up to do something evil and also of David's reliance on God's mercy. So I just think it's a really troubling text. I did not take the time to look into it. I was hoping you did. No, I didn't. I I also was was wondering about that. So I guess if any of our listeners took the time, then they should let us know and we can do a follow-up on this account at our next podcast. This seems like the kind of thing that we both should have researched to help our listeners out as they read it. But I I don't even have a study Bible before me. Does the ESV study Bible say anything about it? 24.1. Here the text says the Lord dot 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 incited David while in 1 Chronicles 21.1 reads Satan incited David. The Lord allowed Satan to incite David. God himself never does evil but sometimes uses evil moral agents to accomplish his purposes for more blah blah blah. So if we bring the two together maybe we have like something similar to when we're looking at the start of Job where God permits Satan to do something. Yeah. Well, at least we have a provisional answer. Okay, I remembered what I was going to say. Where God asks David which punishment he wants, does that happen anywhere else where God gives them a choice of... I was wondering about that, too. I, I jotted that in my brain. Yeah, yeah, here are a few options for yeah. you. Because we were talking about... You remember a couple episodes ago where we were talking about how the punishment kind of fits the crime sort of thing? Yeah, um, here. yeah. I'm trying it's to interesting think about here. that. I, I can't think of something off the top of my head. I don't I mean, think so. I don't know the Bible exhaustively, obviously, but um, that's an interesting question. Does God ever also give someone an option? Have I read every page in the Bible? Not yet. Not in this one. <laughs> no, yeah. I got this Bible in, I think, September of 2021. So I haven't even had it for a full year yet. You can't expect me to read the whole Bible in less than a year. Can you? No. Okay. One of the uh, family Bible discussion questions was a comment about where it struck David right as he had kind of completed the census. And they were saying how... Yeah, verse 10, his conscience troubled him. Yeah. Just being sensitive to, to sin, not... You know, opposed to the, not opposed to, I guess, but with the sin with Bathsheba. Yeah. It seemed like he had to, it, he waited until Nathan came to confront yeah. him about it. But also there are some Psalms that indicate he was kind of tormented about it. Yeah, like it Psalm 51. Yeah, yeah, and then some of the, but I think this in particular, he, in verse 10, goes to the Lord and says, I've sinned greatly. You know, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. So I think that's a very different response than someone like Saul before him, 
who, in a matter of holy war, sinned against God and then denied it. You know, so right. so that's a difference. But I think even as you mentioned that comparison to David and Bathsheba, where Nathan comes to him and confront confronts him, there's another situation that we read in this week's reading where someone comes to David with not a parable, but a contrived situation, a false situation, and catches him in his own statement once again. Where was that? Uh, it was pretty early in the reading. Yeah, here it is in, in chapter 14, where yeah. the woman is talking with him. And she says, when the king spoke, as, this is verse 13, when the king spoke as he did about this matter, he has pronounced his own guilt. That just reminds me so much of Nathan saying, you are the man, right? Right. Uh, so it, it is interesting how when we are, you know, this distinction between objective and subjective is so much contrived. But when we're more objectively oriented to evaluating a situation, we can speak more truly and righteously and justly. But then when we're in our own situation, we can't see it. We're blind to it. So now twice in David's life, his he spoken words of truth and justice in a parallel situation, one a parable, one a made-up scenario, that applied to his own situation, and he couldn't see it until someone told him. So maybe that's a lesson for us, you know, if we're looking for a moral lesson here, is that very often when we look on the affairs of other people, we, we are able to make judicious statements. We can see more clearly. And in our own, we just can't. So even if we have all of the knowledge, we understand all of the principles, because of our own self-involvement, we get in the way of what we know is right. And we don't even realize it. And, and perhaps that's an argument for involving other people in our lives, the decisions we make, accountability, these sorts of things. Because even though we could speak really clearly into someone's life on, on an issue, when we're confronted with the same issue, we, we just can't access it and incorporate the knowledge that we have. Yeah, I think that's good. You know, we're so, you know, I would be like, oh, this is a personal decision. Like, why would someone else's opinion matter? But you're right, they, they probably see a more clear angle than you do because you're involved in it. Yeah, and if someone else were in that same spot, you could you would probably make a different decision for them than what you're making for you, right? right? Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, so I'm interested to get to First Kings in the reading for next week. I know that, you know, we were talking about how at the beginning with the takeaway from the book and, you know, we you were summarizing David's life with good and evil and, you know, we, we I feel like most Christians have a very positive view of David, you know, man mm -hmm. after God's own heart and just kind of this good example and was close with God but we see so many negative and sinful episodes that you know we realize we're all like that we have good and bad traits mm -hmm. and um, who is going to be this king the righteous king that's going to fulfill the promise like it's probably not David we were thinking you know we we see when you know David's child it dies in judgment from God from the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and then we see that 
they have another child named Solomon, and God loves him, so maybe he will be it, but I think we know that he falls into many of the same sin issues as his father David. So. Yeah, there is a note of hope, right, in chapter 12, verse 24, when um, Bathsheba gives birth to a son and names him Solomon, which sounds like peace, you know, shalom, right, mm-hmm. Solomon. The Lord loved him. Right. And then it's interesting that it goes on, and he sent a message through the prophet Nathan, who named him Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord because of the Lord, you know, so it's interesting that there's this hope in David's son through this relationship, you know, what number of wife is she now? Like God is going to keep his promises. God is going to love even people who by all cultural standards, maybe would be the unlovable son or something. Um, And then as we get to the very end of David's life, as David speaks his last words or records them, chapter 23, um, he notes that God has established a permanent covenant with me, ordered and secured in every detail. Will he not bring about my whole salvation, you know, in my every desire? So, So I think even with all of the negative things, there is in, in all the disappointments of who David turns out to be. And even as we start first Kings next week, you know, David will be getting a bed warmer, you know, a, a young lady to lay in his bed to keep him warm. And he ends his life in a way that we think is really pretty disappointing. There is a note of hope that not because of who David is or because of the great dad that he was, but because of the great God that has covenanted with him, that there's hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about that, AJ? I think that we see the son of David in our John reading. Talk about the book of John, AJ. Uh, we do get to see some climactic moments in the book of John in our reading. Um, you know, we were talking about the different signs that John is crafting carefully here in his gospel to show people who are interacting with false teachers after Jesus has ascended and need assurance of the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. So he has read the other gospels and is crafting this unique gospel to bring some other accounts to to bear to the people who will be reading this this gospel and we see the the sign of the resurrection of Lazarus which is a very important sign that foretells Jesus's resurrection and you know who can bring someone back from the dead you know what what you know, someone can turn some water to wine and Mm -hmm. you know we see signs in the old testament or we see miracles in the old testament but the fact that someone has been granted power over life and death that yeah that's that's a significant sign where people need to pay attention and and we really see this as kind of a a climactic moment here yeah now when you say that lazarus's resurrection kind of foretells jesus's resurrection 
Was Lazarus raised in the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead in terms of never dying again? Or would Lazarus see death again? Lazarus did die again. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't see this resurrection in a new, a new body, a new, yeah, it's it. not the glorified right, body, the, so the to speak, body, yet, yeah, because Jesus is the first born of the dead. Right. But I think Matthew's account talks about the earthquake, graves opening, dead raising, mm-hmm. and we assume all of the people raised prior to Jesus died again, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. So on that note, I think it's hilarious that in John 12... The chief priests like plot to kill Lazarus because every you know everyone was like understanding Jesus has power over death, so their answer is let's kill him again. <laughs> you know I think right. that's kind of funny. Yeah, well, and it's not just the Lazarus. You know we've seen Jesus, um, you know, heal people who were near death or had had recently died, but Lazarus, you know, he had been dead for a couple days. You know, I think this was, you know, he said that, you know, he waited to show God's glory here. And we we see that because of this period of time that there's no way this could have been faked or fabricated or mm-hmm. staged. We, we see that this guy was definitely dead. And yeah, there, there's not like a video editor somewhere who made this sweet video and then put it on Facebook. Right. There are real live people engaging with this now living guy. Yep. Resurrection and Eden are the best churches ever. <laughs> Those are the only churches you've known, so. <laughs> what about the church that the Apostle Paul started? Was that one better than Resurrection? No. No, probably not. Yeah. Now, Josh Huber recently preached two sermons from John 11. So it would behoove us to direct our listeners back to those two sermons if they're interested in thinking more deeply about John 11. That's true. Those were good sermons. So, AJ, what else should we talk about in the book of John? I have two things, but I want to hear what you have. Well, we see another I am statement linked with a sign here with the death of and resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus says to Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. Mm-hmm. Whoever believes in me, even though he will die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks, do you believe this? I think that's that question. It's, it's almost like where is John and Jesus, you know, like who's talking? Because mm-hmm. John's narrating this, but Jesus was talking. And a lot of times when you read through the book of John, it's it's kind of confusing, especially for people who want to make those red letter Bibles. It's like, who's talking? Is it Jesus or is it John? And I feel like it's kind of both here. It's like John is making this point, you know, he wants his readers to believe this, but Jesus said this originally, you know, do you believe this? That's the point of this, the gospel. And that's why this is a climactic sign mm-hmm. is because this is, this is the heart of this gospel. I think it's really important to, to recognize that. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, I think it's really impossible to tell at times who's speaking, right? right. Like 
Um, it's just not conceivable that John is using direct quotes anyway. He's filling in things from memory, probably. Right. And, um, you know, of course, the, er the early Greek manuscripts are all capital letters. There's no quotation system like we have, right? right? So we can't quite know. But still, the message is really quite clear. And as John makes clear in other places as well, you know, do you truly believe what what you ought to believe, which is Jesus is the Son of God, um, and and that comes through really clearly here. What do you find interesting with the Gospel of John? What do you want to talk about? I guess I could say three things, AJ. One is I thought it was one, and then it went to two. It, you got three things yeah. to say. Okay. This is sort of the way that my sermons work as well. <laughs> like I have one point. No, I have two points. Wait. Wait. Three points, yeah. Three points. Yeah. Okay. So you'd be like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said. Anyway. Save so it. I guess I only Save have that's... I only have two things. Okay. Back to two. Uh, no, I'll make it three. Okay, here are three things. I think in yeah. In this section, you can definitely see coherence between the gospel of John and the letters of John later in the New Testament. So for example, when John quotes Jesus in John 13, 34, I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. And then if we slip back to 1 John chapter 2, he's saying in verse 7, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you've had from the beginning. The old command is the word that you have heard. Yeah, I'm writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you. So you see some of the coherence between these these letters. So I think the more you pay attention to John's gospel, and then you read John's letters, you see it, it's the same guy. Right. Number two. There are, as you know, AJ, and I think most of our listeners would know, multiple views about end times, particularly relating to God's kingdom. So to set this scene a little bit, there are, there's premillennialism, which says essentially that there will be a 1,000-year reign of Christ after a seven-year tribulation. And then there's a, like a final battle, and then there's eternity, right? And then there's post-millennialism that pretty much says if Christians do enough evangelism and like create the, a Christian state, yeah, then the kingdom's there. Like we're, we're building it in that way. Um, and then there's like a, a mediating position called amillennialism or realized millennialism, which says um, we're in the kingdom right now. Jesus is king. Therefore, the kingdom exists, but it's in an already and not yet form. And even some dispensationalists will say there's an already and not yet. But um, I, I happen to think this realized millennium eschatology makes the most sense. And one of the reasons that I do is because of what Jesus says in, in John twelve twenty, He quotes Jesus saying, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So I see this as Jesus saying that at his death and resurrection, he becomes a king. 
and Satan, the ruler of this world, is cast out. And if Jesus is the king, then the kingdom is here. But we also hold to an already not yet of the kingdom to where it's already here, but not yet in its fullness. So sin is still present. Um, these things are kind of taken for granted, but Jesus is a king. We're not waiting for a thousand year kingdom to happen. We're waiting for Jesus's return in the forever to happen. Uh, and John picks us up in his letters where he says the true light is already shining and the darkness is passing away, which gives us the already and the not yet. This morning I was listening to some very old contemporary Christian music and the band was called Remedy Drive. Have you ever heard of them? No. I saw them in concert when they were touring the Midwest before okay. they were known for huh. the... Anyway. You're a few years my senior. That's true. And you were... also you're the consummate hipster coming across things before they're popular. That's true. So I think you were probably in fourth grade when I saw this concert. So. Holy cow. Wait, how old were you? I don't remember. How old are you now? 34. Are you 34? I am 34. Dude, you're older old. than our Lord was. That's right. I know. I passed the perfect age. It's just downhill from here. Wow. So you're like two and a half or three years older than me because yeah. I turned 31 this summer. Yeah. So I actually, I was probably in like ninth grade or 10th grade or something. Okay. So I was in like maybe middle school. Seventh or eighth. All of those years, I can't really remember. And yeah, I mean, I think some of those songs are tough because you really love the message, but maybe it doesn't fit with your theology. And one that I think now mostly fits with my theology is in this amillennial or realized millennial view, but probably better fits a post-millennial view, is a group called Ren Collective and a song called Build Your Kingdom Here. Hmm. I, I love that song. I think it's awesome. I can see how it fits with my view, but also <laughs> when I was in seminary, when I was a premillennialist, I found a way to justify it fitting a premillennial context. So I think I could make it fit whatever context just because I like the song so much. Wasn't that the way with art? You know, you interpret it and you appreciate it from where you're at. Yeah, but art is a little bit more like art has a larger. So with my Bethlehem students, I was talking about what meaning is mm -hmm. and I was telling them, you know, I think that there are different kinds of texts. There are fixed texts like a prescription, like a medical prescription. And that has a sphere of meaning so small. The authorial communicative intent is so limited. It can't really mean much. It, it has a very fixed meaning way on the other end of the spectrum you'll have like an impressionistic painting and the authorial communicative intent in that is just massive and in in the intent the artist is releasing this painting beyond its intent so that's something too hmm. um songs i think are not quite that far but somewhat Somewhere. close yeah. So maybe I take a modern, postmodernist, reader-oriented approach to music, but you know, you know, sue me, right? Like, right. I'm going to enjoy the song, and I fa I found a way to make it work with my theology. Good. Well, we should take that and apply it to the Bible. Just whatever you think, just make the Bible. Fit well, in the and that's what think. I was trying to tell, tell my students: you can't do. <laughs> like, I I feel like. You know, my feelings tell me this because we live in a therapeutic age. Yep. Um, I think you have to say the Bible has different kinds of texts, right? 
some are more fixed. You know, I think maybe some of the most fixed are epistles like Philemon that are giving pretty much instructions. Uh, but some are not as fixed narratives, for example. Um, so there's more that's happening in the authorial communicative intent than in Paul's epistle to Philemon. Hmm. And in John, these stories obviously have authorial communicative intent. But some of the stories invite uh, more reflection and they're, by what they are, broader and allow us to reflect on them in different ways. I had one more thing from the book of John, and that is John's parable where he's predicting his crucifixion in John 12, 23 and following, where he says this, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And there's probably a lot to reflect on from this, but um, at the start of my sabbatical and at the end of my sabbatical, I decided to listen to a retirement lecture by a professor named Richard Hayes. And he references this and quotes a poem by a guy named Malcolm Guide, who I hope to quote on Sunday. Unless, AJ, you think I'm just being really self-serving in including this poem. But he points out that the King James translation, and I think the CSB does a great job here. The King James says that um, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone, which contrasts with Jesus's instructions for his disciples to abide in him. Mm -hmm. And it's really emphasizing that the way of Jesus is self-giving in that unless we do, we abide by ourselves, apart from Christ, and I think apart from Christ's community. So the way of sacrifice is really set in the context of, of the community and of our relationship with Christ, which should dictate the way that we live. Right. And it's no surprise then that John emphasizes in the next chapter, chapter 13, that Jesus loved his disciples and he loved them to the end, and he did so sacrificing and serving the whole way. Hmm. Uh, so the Christian life, I think, ultimately is a call to sacrifice, but a call to sacrifice within the context of community. And if we fail to sacrifice, we won't be able to participate in the community and we'll abide alone hmm. as this, this seed. That's interesting. So I point people to this retirement lecture. If you just Google on you or go to YouTube, Richard Hayes retirement lecture, I, th I think this would be a really encouraging thing for people to listen to. That's good. We do know that that theme of abiding and remaining, and even the one who overcomes, is a theme through all the writings that, that John wrote that are included mm -hmm. in the Bible. And we don't have time today to, to touch on that, but uh, that's something that our listeners could go and, and research and search out and gain a lot from. So Absolutely. That's really, really good. Anything else, AJ, that you wanted to talk about from John? No, I think we should we should end it here. We, if you are struggling in your journey of reading through the Bible in a year, we've got some tips for you in the next episode. So you should stick around and listen to the next episode, and we will give you some tips if you're you're struggling. And I know it sometimes I am, 
And so look forward to our, our next episode. Yeah. So AJ, I would tell our listeners, if they're listening to this and thinking, I have not read any of the texts for the last month that these jokers are talking about. This is what I'd say. I would say, it's okay. Don't go back and try to read all of them. Pick up with our reading for next week, which starts in, for the New Testament, John 14, and for the Old Testament, 1 Kings. So don't try to make things up. Don't live in the past. Grab onto the present. Let's read together. We're halfway through, almost, and we can finish this thing together. This podcast is a ministry for Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can go to resurrectionmn.org.